So I farm so hard, the employees wanna find me And then wanna hire me What's 100k to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy Working late nights, you best believe me My grades can only go ace Never wanna see another B unless I'm Jay-Z Farm so hard, let's get paid Good evening, everyone, or good morning, wherever you are, or welcome to another edition of the Farm So Hard Podcast. I'm your host today, Jim Pruitt, the ED Pharmacist, aka PharmD in the ED, and I have today probably the best episode we're going to have, and we have some of the most you know, unique guests, but today we have someone who's probably what we call one of the founders of what ED Pharmacy is today, and they're going to teach us a lot. So... Without a delay, can you please introduce yourself and tell the world who's speaking today? Sure. My name is Nicola Quisto. I'm an emergency medicine clinical pharmacist at the University of Rochester Medical Center in Rochester, New York. Perfect. And what other roles do you, you have at the University of Rochester? Sure. So I've been in this position uh, since about 2007 is when I did my PGY2 emergency medicine training. And then I took on the position of the clinical pharmacist in the ED uh, at that time. And at that time, there, there was another pharmacist that was there, Dan Hayes, and he left uh, right around the time that I was starting. So I kind of took over the practice um, as my own then. At that time, I was really the only pharmacist in the ED for several years, um, but my role has evolved um, where we now have a team of clinical pharmacists practicing in the ED, and I've um, become more of a mentor for the team. I do work uh, clinically still, but more on an intermittent basis, and I work more now in an administrative capacity, working with each individual services that touch the ED and working to improve processes and workflows to optimize patient outcomes. Phenomenal. And for a lot of people, they want to know, those who stay within ED, a pharmacy, they want to know what kind of led you into pharmacy and particularly what led you into being an emergency medicine pharmacist. So can you kind of guide us down the, the journey, what led you into pharmacy and ultimately what led you into emergency medicine pharmacy? Sure. I, my story is kind of, I guess, an interesting one in that I kind of fell into both pharmacy and emergency medicine pharmacy. When I was a freshman in college, I really did. I knew I liked sciences, but I didn't really want to go into medicine. And someone was sitting behind me in a calculus class and she was looking through some papers that her father had actually printed off for her trying to find her a career. And she kind of gave me the, the bullet points of pharmacy. And I said, oh, that sounds interesting. Can I have the phone number to call the school to talk about it? So at that time, which is kind of funny, I did. I called at the University of Buffalo is where I wound up going to pharmacy school, my college at the time. And it wasn't really common for schools to have pre-pharmacy programs. So I kind of had to work on my own um, prerequisite curriculum. And this person that I had met that day that I had met her, we wound up studying for the PCATs together. We went to pharmacy school together um, and I was in her wedding and I'm still <laughs> friends with her uh, today. So that was kind of how I fell into pharmacy practice and kind of during pharmacy school. At that time, there wasn't a lot of discussion about residency um, and they kind of brought up residency, but it was really hard to understand why you would do a residency. But it was something that I kind of thought could be beneficial I didn't have any hospital experience and I had worked in um, retail pharmacy throughout most of school. So after that, I wound up doing a, a PGY-1 pharmacy practice residency at Kaleida Health in Buffalo. And then after that, um, I just wanted to work at a large university teaching hospital. And I wound up in Rochester, New York, which is about an hour and 15 minutes from Buffalo. And from there, I started as a clinical staff pharmacist, and I spent a couple days in the emergency department with Dan Hayes, who was there, 
And I really, I liked it, but it wasn't, I, I didn't really, I guess, think twice about EM pharmacy at that time and kind of continued. I was a, a young clinician at the time, but I started to, you know, as the spring came around, I kind of started to think of like what my next steps were in pharmacy. And it, again, at that time, there was only two emergency medicine pharmacy residency programs in the country, and they didn't have a lot of interest in their program. And they actually approached me to see if I wanted to do the PGY2 EM residency program. And my first uh, reaction was no. I think anyone that does two residencies is crazy after just getting off my first residency. And then I took a little bit of pause to think about it more over the next day and really felt that I could learn a lot in emergency medicine, that I could learn a lot about a lot of things. And that it would be silly for me to turn down um, the educational opportunity. And so I uh, jumped into residency training that following year and then really um, found my passion for emergency medicine pharmacy. That's phenomenal. It's pretty interesting to know that, like, you know, you went into this and most people, you know, look up to you, read all your articles and, and just realize like, oh, man, you know, you went into this and, you know, emergency medicine really chose you. And that's a pretty cool, you know, uh, story that, you know, you went into it, just open minded and just something developed out of, out of nothing. And, you know, tons of publications later, tons of probably mentor mentee relationships later, you're kind of in this role after starting off, just, you know, just seeing what it can do for you. Uh, yeah, now, I really appreciate that. I mean, it's it seems like a really uh, right place, right time. Um, and I've never heard someone say that where it really found me, but I but I think it did. That's really yeah. good it. That's pretty cool. And a lot of the audience, you know, I reached out to people when I first started, you know, at out of residency, start the program where I was at. And I had a lot of questions. And the more I went into it, I realized, I realized that multiple individuals, whether they were starting a program or whether they were expanding the program, they had lots of questions about what to do and what order. And a lot of times I just went back and looked at the history and a lot of the data that comes out for emergency medicine pharmacists was originated at the University of Rochester. And you know, as you mentioned with um, Dan Hayes and then with you kind of taking over. So for the audience who's not familiar, can you please discuss the ED pharmacist project and that was conducted at the Strong Hospital that was led by Dr. Fairbanks? Yes. And I think this is what really kind of embedded Rochester is, is kind of one of the, the leaders in the mod modern emergency medicine world, if you will. Um, but Terry Fairbanks was a um, EM physician at Rochester at the time and a researcher, and he really had a focus on human factors and safety, um, system safety engineering. And he recognized during his, he had done residency in Rochester and then stayed on as an attending and worked for, with the division of research. And he really recognized the role that the pharmacists had um, on medication safety. And they that group had applied for um, a grant through the, the NIH and with AHRQ, which is the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. And the, the grant was titled the ED Pharmacist as a Safety Measure in Emergency Medicine. And it was a $600,000 um, grant that they received to really study the impact of the pharmacist. And from um, this grant, there was a handful of publications related to the current state of EM pharmacy practice, the value um, of the pharmacist to medical and, and nursing staff, and the pharmacist's role in med safety. And this was ultimately a platform, too, for the development of ASHP had this patient care impact program where Terry and Dan worked with mentoring um, new pharmacists in emergency medicine pharmacy over several years. So they would they would have an application process and they'd have a group of uh, pharmacists that over a year that they would mentor. And throughout that program, there were about 80 pharmacists that went through that. 
And that's phenomenal. I think uh, when I looked at it, I read like it was multiple um, presentations that came out that kind of describe what the nurses were satisfied. They describe a lot of the literature behind, you know, like door to like uh, I've seen one of the publications as far as like door to needle time for MI and door to cath lab time as well, and showing how uh, ED pharmacists can impact those numbers in a positive way while also influencing safety. Just wanted to to mention too, just for any residents listening, um, the the pharmacist the MI project was actually my residency project. So I just wanted to just kind of highlight that for residents that are out there, you know, there are impactful research projects that can come all the way to publication, you know, even as a, a young clinician. Um, I was lucky enough to have the support of, of uh, Terry, especially, um, and Dan and others. But, you know, those are the kind of projects that you can even do during your residency program. Now that we're starting to see, you know, when you first started, there was two residency programs out there. And now that pro that number has expanded to about 50 plus. And I think we're getting close to in, in the 60s. I'm not uh, sure what a lot of programs still going through accreditation. So can you describe you know, when you're looking for a pharmacist to join your team and the fact that you've had ED services there for a while now, what do you believe is like the, the desired training of an ideal uh, ED pharmacist? Yeah, I think ultimately now with the expansion of residency training, you know, the ideal candidate would be a PGY2 trained EM pharmacist. And even more desirable would be a PGY2 trained EM pharmacy specialist trained by someone that had PGY2 EM training. But, you know, ultimately, we know we're still, you know, more of a, a junior specialty, if you will. So, you know, that would be the ideal setting. I think there's a lot of other routes um, for training for the ideal um, ED pharmacist. Uh, residency training in another PGY2 specialty definitely gives you the clinical practice skills and the ability to incorporate like evidence-based medicine into practice, which is definitely a skill needed in the ED. And then, you know, kind of learning the ED practice. Um, there's a little bit of art to that, but at least uh, that can give the infrastructure. There's also, um, you know, PGY-1 training and then with additional kind of mentorship from an EM clinical pharmacist is another excellent uh way or an excellent, you know, kind of training path for people that might not have been able to do PGY2 EM residency program. And there are resources like ACCP has um, the emergency medicine, PRN has a code program which matches mentors and mentees. Um, over the years, there's been plenty of people that have been starting practices that have reached out to come for site visits. Um, so that's another opportunity too. There's um, just from a knowledge base and competency standpoint, there's a lot of tools. ASHB has a lot of tools on their emergency care uh, site, including their reps program. And they also have an EM certificate program right now, in addition to other training courses like ACLS and PALS and ATLS that can be helpful to, to really um, kind of expand that competency. And then hopefully um, we are working towards board certification, which would, which would kind of be added to this desired training for the ideal pharmacist. Yeah, and can, I, I recently I was kind of confused, especially for the PGY2 train EM program, uh, well, I would say residents that went through the program, where do this like ASHP EM certificate kind of fit in? And I kind of reached out to multiple people. Where do you see this certification fit in? Is this something that even if you're PGY2 trained, this is something that can 
you know, be an additional certification or is this something that just continue to help build competence and, you know, with everyone that's involved? This, so I've been able to, I'm actually partway through the program myself and I've been um, working through it. And I do think it's very beneficial, especially for people that did not have PGY2 EM training. And then I would also kind of add the caveat where I think it could be really beneficial to for, for people right out of EM um, training as well. I think it's, you know, it, it really does have like those foundational pieces um, to really expand your knowledge base and really does do a good job of going through the evidence-based medicine, you know, kind of along with each of those topics. So I guess, you know, I more see this right now probably for PGY-1 trained people or PGY-2 trained um, pharmacists that are starting practice in the ED, but not necessarily the PGY-2 EM, EM trained pharmacists. But, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm going through the program myself too. So I think, you know, there's, there's kind of always the opportunity to better yourself. And I've definitely picked up things through the program myself too. Yeah, I'm, re- I'm in, in the middle of it as well. I thought it was something that, you know, if I'm going to advocate for board certification and if I'm going to advocate for just the expansion of ED services, you know, I want to make sure I buy in and um, into this and continue to grow and improve that continued, you know, thriving to gain more knowledge by going to some of these programs. Yeah, and I do think um, the BPS is still a couple of years out. So the petition um, for board certification has just been submitted to the Board of Pharmacy Specialties. And it's a, a very large 450 page um, document that really kind of highlights the, the need for this and also about emergency medicine pharmacy as a specialty itself. So the Board of Pharmacy Specialties has about six months to review this, and then there's potential that they can come back needing more information. And then after that, um, they would put together a group for question writing, and it, it takes a while for the text the test to actually come to fruition. Um, so it's probably, my guess is probably three years out. And I think the EM certificate is kind of a nice bridge in there um, until BPS uh, certification hopefully is available. Yeah, a lot of people was talking about, you know, when is it going to happen? And you're saying it's looking to be about like 2023, 2022 looks to be kind of the earliest if everything goes in the right direction. And kind of to piggyback off of that, a lot of individuals now are becoming eligible for BCCCP. And is that something, you know, that's a credential that you have yourself and something I was looking at. What's your take on getting that uh, in the meanwhile, again, since we're about three years out in addition to BCPS? Yeah, I mean, I would advocate for board certification if you're not board certified. And I think doing BCCCP is a good option for us. Um, I personally really enjoyed studying for it. I felt like there was a lot of um, applicable applicable parts to emergency medicine uh, pharmacy. So I had, I was originally BCPS certified. That was what it was available. And then I let that expire and then do BCCCP and then I'll let that expire. And then by the time um, the EM, uh, EMPCP should be available. But, you know, I, I do think the BCCCP test is a good opportunity now if you have interest in getting board certified, which, you know, I would advocate for. I think it gives us, you know, kind of that level playing field to our physician colleagues to show that we have, you know, a certain competency um, in board certification in in a, a specialty area. And I think that's a good option until the EM test is available. Absolutely. That was the same mindset I had going into is just, I want to do as much as I can. And I really, 
again, when I studied for BCPS, that I really enjoyed the process of going through it. And you've mentioned you, you enjoyed the same thing for the critical care exam. And I'm hoping that a lot of this would just help us take care of our patients in a, you know, a more efficient, evidence-based manner. So we talked a lot about the clinician and the training and kind of the history of EM pharmacists. Now let's like switch gears a little bit and talk about the first steps in implementing a EM clinical pharmacy service. So if we had, you know, all the resources and we had all the buy-in, take us through your mindset and how to, again, set up an emergency medicine um, clinical service. Yeah, you know, I think day one is probably the, the most difficult, right? But, you know, the really the first step, and, and this is what I try to advise our residents too, is that, you know, the first step is to get into the emergency department, to be mobile, definitely don't want to be sitting at a desk, um, and to really start observing and learning what each individual members of the team, what their responsibilities are, what their workflow is, and where are there potential gaps where a pharmacist could be beneficial. And I always kind of say like, you know, spend the first few months just really kind of observing, really learning that. And I think the providers that you work with respect that as well, because then when you're eventually at the point of trying to bring new initiatives or bring new processes, you've really taken into consideration their workflow and their responsibilities in that. I think it's really important to be visible. You know, again, this is kind of up and out and around and with the team. You should really kind of start participating in direct patient care responsibilities at the bedside, you know, as a member of the team, really showing how you can make pharmacotherapy recommendations, you can optimize drug-related care, you know, even if you're kind of quiet or initially um, with the team, which, you know, you should obviously like kind of watch, watch and learn a little bit, but there's always going to be that, you know, oh, what's the dose? you know, conversation that happens or, oh, what, why do you think we should do this? And where you can kind of start interjecting your, you know, your pharmacy knowledge to really start helping with the team and just kind of those little pieces where it's not, you know, coming in like a bull and, you know, trying to kind of change everything they're doing, but even just kind of sitting back and just providing um, your knowledge when there's gaps in their ability to do that really kind of goes a long way, especially when you're starting. And obviously facilitating medication administration is always a nice thing in these, um, you know, extremely emergent situations too. You're definitely an extra set of hands as well. Um, but, you know, I really think kind of like this, this, this being mobile, being at the bedside, this kind of like look, listen approach is really um, helpful when you're getting started. And it really helps you start building the relationships that, you know, ultimately, I think with emergency medicine, more than any specialty, because you work with so many different people, is that building the relationships is going to be the, the best thing that you can do for your practice. When you have a good relationship with people, they'll listen to you um, and they'll also start to seek you out. And that'll ultimately be able to help you be more proactive in the emergency department in the long run. Absolutely. That was one of the, a lot of the advice I reached out on Twitter as soon as I got down with residency and I knew I was going into a program that hadn't had ED pharmacists and I was, I wanted to figure out like, what should I do? And overwhelmingly everyone was saying, don't do anything too much. Just go there and just build relationships and, that's been difficult because, you know, once you, you've been in pharmacy school and you're going through do PGY1, you do PGY2, you're used to having projects, you're used to just getting things done and you're used to being heavily involved with those things. But I think now I've been at my, my new site now for going on four months and it's been unbelievable how much things have changed as far as when I first got there and my involvement in critical patients versus now, how they're just, you know, a lot more used to me. And as we go into the new year, 
we're trying to game plan now with the team what activities we're going to take over. So I think that that's, that's great advice. And that's something that may be difficult for people who especially are outgoing. And I think within uh, ED pharmacists, we tend to have a more of a, I, 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 I would like to speak for myself, I would say, have a more <laughs> of an outgoing personality and, and, you know, a little bit more, you know, like to engage with large groups of people. So with that component being said, when we start off, you know, everyone have access to different resources. What is going to be the optimal number of FTEs? Again, with if you have your C-suite on your side, what's going to be the optimal number of FTEs to start clinical pharmacy services? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a difficult question to answer because, you know, obviously there's so many different models in pharmacy. Um, you know, like I said, at one point I was the only emergency medicine pharmacist and, you know, that was beneficial because um, I had more flexibility. So I wasn't in, you know, any sort of like staffing number. I was able to focus on, I really focused on system changes. So I was I wanted to really focus on how can I impact practice when I'm not there. And, you know, that itself is a quality model, even though there's only one um, clinical pharmacist. And there's still a lot of settings that are like that as well. Um, you know, obviously having more pharmacists in the ED, there's greater hours of coverage. And we do know that emergency medicine pharmacists, you know, at the bedside participating in direct patient care activities capture more med errors than just prospective order review. So, you know, there is obviously a lot to be said for more pharmacists coverage. I would say if there is a partnership, for example, so there's a lot of people that are on like a seven on seven off or four on four off rotation with a partner, you know, I would really advocate for the the model to be built where there's a day of overlap so that there is administrative time and those pharmacists get to be face-to-face -face and they're not just kind of <laughs> passing chips on different days so that they can really talk about practice issues and tackling um, different things in a, in a consistent way. You know, ideally, if you're thinking of 24-7 coverage, which I think ultimately is everyone's goal, you know, that's where you get into having, you know, a large number of FTEs. Um, I think with these types of models, this is where you get a little more diversity in training. And it's really important to have a clinical lead or a mentor for the team to really help kind of drive a consistent practice model and to work with different individuals on projects and team goals, you know, with the hope, you know, in the ideal world, if we're saying, you know, to have some time for clinical buy down and, and administrative time on different projects too, for people, you know, optimal FTE, which, which is what your question was, is, is difficult to say, um, you know, obviously, even in a 24-hour coverage model, you probably need, um, you know, even eight to 10 FTEs to do that. Even in a partnership, you know, I would, you know, like I said, just kind of advocate for not stretching that resource too far um, to really not necessarily push for seven day a week coverage, push for six day a week coverage with two people. So I guess I don't have a perfect answer for your question, um, but I think that we need to work on thinking of, um, you know, just kind of the longevity of the model too, and being able to work on these other things that automatically come with the practice site and making sure that we're building in time to do that well, and that we're also building in time for the team to grow together and create a consistent practice model for the clinicians and the nurses. Absolutely. And one of the things that becomes a major discussion is how to fund these pharmacists. We're talking about anywhere from one to, you know, what could be 10 FTEs that are going to be, you know, needed to cover a service that's probably be 24 seven, which is what everyone wants to get to and which is what a lot of the, our physician colleagues would love for us to have. 
So there, can you describe some of the different funding options that individuals may not be you know, familiar with that can fund uh, ED services? Yeah, you know, I don't know if I have a great answer to this question um, either, unfortunately, but, you know, I think the justification for ED services really, um, you know, it doesn't stem from minimizing use of high cost medications um, or, you know, for instance, like, you know, we're giving a lot of one time medications, so we're not able to kind of reduce treatment duration or things like that that are associated with more hard dollar savings. So I think a lot of the the justification from the C-suite for, for services is really been focused on meeting quality measures, obviously patient outcomes, reducing med errors, you know, optimizing antimicrobial stewardship and and now, you know, newer opioid stewardship efforts. We can decrease ED returns and readmissions and help streamline care. And I think we can get a lot of bang for our buck too in increasing, um, you know, what do we do that saves time and increases productivity for the clinicians and the nurses, you know, especially in an overstressed environment, which all of our um, emergency departments are. So I don't know if I have have um, a lot of, you know, unique funding source opportunities, but I think as far as justifying services, it's definitely important to really kind of get creative with these quality outcomes. And I think, you know, individually for each C-suite, you know, there are different C-suites want different things. A lot are focused, obviously, on readmissions and and CMS measures. So I think that's a really good area to target um, for these types of proposals. And there are a couple, um, you know, there's a handful of publications out there that summarize a lot of the literature to date at the time of publication that focus on um, pharmacist involvement with patient outcomes and things like that can help with your proposal. And then also, you know, it doesn't hurt, obviously, to have a snapshot of kind of your own data or your own workload, um, potentially, as far as involvement and responses or interventions, just in a snapshot to be able to use for these justification reports. Absolutely. And that's the thing. Everyone, I've been to three different places and sometimes individuals use, you know, order verification as a, as a driver. Uh, sometimes they've mentioned, you know, things that, as you talked about, about readmissions and quality measures. And I think um, just for the audience, I think it'd be pretty cool just to see how individuals have a combination of those different things to justify their, their presence in the ED and the FTEs that are, that are, are needed. And now that, you know, in our hypothetical, you know, example, we have the great training of an individual. Uh, we've got the, the FTEs that we need, and we've talked about the funding of it. Uh, which pharmacy services should be prioritized? You know, after we went through that period of time where we're, you know, getting familiar with the, with the team and kind of getting heavily involved in direct patient care, what other services should be prioritized? Because I'm looking at the article that was done by you and Dr. Morgan, and it's a, a list of things that we can be involved in from prior to the patient we coming to the ED and t- through patient discharge. And there's a lot of different things we can kind of get into. So but what are the key foundational services that should be provided for a new program? Yeah, I think, um, you know, this is a difficult uh, question to, um, there's obviously, I think, kind of the core ED practices that we think of. So I think absolutely direct bedside care involvement, you know, being a part of the EM team and taking care of critically ill patients that require resuscitation, like your cardiac arrest, respiratory arrest, 
septic shock, trauma patients, or any patient presenting with a time-dependent emergency like stroke or MI should always be kind of top priority. I think these cases are then followed by um, those that are using high-risk medications or a high-risk procedure, so like procedural sedation, for instance. And then uh, proactive pharmacy consultation, I think, is important kind of as the, the third rung of prioritizing um, ED clinical services. I think, you know, one of the things that you mentioned too is justification for positions based on order volume. And, you know, I know that there's a lot of mixed models as far as uh, prospective order review. And I think, you know, the same thing kind of goes along with medication histories. I think there is a lot of positions justified based on prospective order review and based on medication histories. But I think, you know, we have to think about how to get beyond that. So we, in our model, we do prospective order review, um, but I try to push the pharmacists, you know, that this is kind of, you work on, you know, the clinical activities, the direct bedside care activities, and then, you know, you jump in and kind of get through the orders and then you go back. And really, you know, that shouldn't be the primary focus of um of the practice because any emergent order that's in that queue, it should already be a patient that you're working with at the bedside. So, you know, I do think like those kind of priorities in the emergency department are important. You mentioned about pre-hospital care. You know, I think those are the kind of things that you can add on, you know, as you start to solidify your practice in the emergency department. So I've always kind of been the proponent of you have to know what happens before the hospital and you have to know what happens, you know, for instance, when the patient gets transferred in the into the ICU to really be able to effectively do your role in the emergency department. So, you know, you have to know, you know, why did they select this versus this in the pre-hospital setting? And, you know, you have to know based on what your recommendations are going to be, what happens, you know, from the ICU perspective, for instance. So I think those are um, areas that you can get involved in after you've kind of solidified your emergency medicine practice. But there's obviously a huge role, for instance, in pre-hospital uh, services. And I'm such an advocate for that regarding, you know, being involved in formulary decision making for the pre-hospital providers and for the flight providers um, in development of protocols. And we're helping them work through shortages and education and doing research with the pre-hospital providers too. So, you know, that's definitely an area to, to focus on after really solidifying that clinical practice in the ED. Absolutely. And a lot of times um, what, we're, what we're seeing is that, you know, you get involved and these projects kind of come up, come about and you're just doing what's in front of you. And one of the things that I've been trying to really capture for myself and my team is kind of setting a vision of how we should roll things out over a period of time where we solidify things down in the ED. And then we start looking at both ends of the spectrum, like looking at, you know, ICU, as you mentioned, and, and then eventually getting to looking at pre-hospital care and just kind of coming together to make a you know, decision on where to go instead of just haphazardly just going in one direction based off, you know, the tasks that are thrown at you like, oh, this project needs to be done here or this one needs to be done over there. But really just trying to lay out a vision of what the ER can and be as we, you know, grow our services. Yeah, and I do, and I think that's super important. And, you know, I guess the one other group that we kind of didn't mention, but, you know, 90% of our patients are are treating release patients that go back into the community or to a skilled nursing facility. And, you know, even though we tend to focus on the most critically ill patients in the emergency department, which is, I always, you know, think is important. And I've always kind of trained residents to, you know, to, 
really learn the critical care piece because that's that's the information you need to know really quickly where you know the other stuff you have a little bit more time for but you know there's obviously a huge ambulatory care practice there's a huge opportunity you know even just thinking through like an antimicrobial stewardship program you know focused on really that ambulatory care piece or skilled nursing facility. So there's there's even beyond, you know, pre-hospital and ICU, there is a potential to really kind of delve into these other areas too. But I think that's great. Your vision is is great and really kind of thinking beyond like what's what's next. Absolutely. So a lot a lot of times where I'm pretty sure you've trained individuals and they went on to go to different sites and they've done some things that were, were great. But what are some of the most common mistakes do you see a new PharmD make when entering practice as a, you know, a clinician or, you know, as a, as a, as a team when implementing services, some things that are commonly done and say, well, I wish I would have waited a little longer to do this, or I wish I could have different, a different approach. Do you have like a kind of a, a few stories of some things you've seen over the years? Yeah, I guess, you know, my own personal story might be the one that I'm closest to, but, you know, it's really just trying to do too much at once. And we've kind of alluded to this before. And, you know, this was a mistake that I made kind of jumping in when when the service was, was on my own. There's so many things that you see, you know, you can spend in you can spend, you know, one day in an emergency department and your head can be spinning with like all the things that you want to work on and try to fix. So I think it's, you know, it's important to kind of, you know, slow your, uh, your jumping in, I guess. Um, so, you know, like we said, sit back, prioritize a little bit, um, come up with your list of things. And, you know, I say for like new EM pharmacists, you know, focus on a couple like quick, minimal effort, but big win kind of projects, like even optimizing the medication dispensing cabinet. If there has been pharmacists there before, it's likely that they're, you know, having difficulty getting meds. The the cabinet formulary is probably out of date. And this can be like an easy, like quick win thing to get really buy-in for pharmacy services. And then really, you know, have your list of kind of two or three larger initiatives that you want to work on each year. And, and try not to make the mistake of working on, you know, 10 different initiatives at once and trying to push them all through. So, you know, these might be things like, you know, optimizing your four-factor PCCU um, in the ED or, you know, we kind of talked a little bit about antimicrobial stewardship. You know, this could be, you know, working on reducing treatment of asymptomatic bacteria or respiratory tract infections that don't need antibiotics. And, you know, those are kind of like the larger initiatives where you just pick a few to work on each year. Absolutely. And then last, I know we, we kind of talked a lot about different things and you've gave a, a, a lot of advice. Is there any like, you know, advice that you give for students that's interested in emergency medicine and the same thing for residents that are interested in, 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 in this? Because I think a lot of times we get to we get students and we get residents and it's very entertaining to be in the ER during those, you know, peak times where you have medical emergencies. But can you give advice about the entire you know, component of being an ER specialist, especially now that you're in a role of being in a more managerial component? Yeah, I mean, I think we need to really kind of focus on what the cornerstone of EM pharmacy is. And I think, you know, over time, because of the electronic medical record and different responsibilities, that that can get blurred a little bit. So we have to remember that, you know, there's EM pharmacies specialty practice. And there's, you know, pharmacists that can be physically working in the emergency department, doing some other activities that don't necessarily need to be specialists. So, you know, we really need to think, you know, what are the unique, what's the skill set of an emergency medicine clinical pharmacist? And I always think of, you know, and I think this is a, a good thing for residents and students and for junior faculty, junior practitioners to kind of have in their mind. But, you know, the cornerstone of EM pharmacy is really a mobile practice, an integrated practice, having 
a role on the team. Um, and to obviously to optimize pharmacotherapy care, reduce med errors and improve patient outcomes. And I think we need to challenge ourselves all to continue to work at the top of our license. And, you know, ultimately your goal is to become individual individually irreplaceable by your colleagues. So you want them to not just think, you know, I need a pharmacist, but I need you specifically. And I think that's where, you know, we just need to make sure that we're continuing to drive practice in that direction and to not get stagnant just having a decentralized service in that area, but actually having a specialty practice in that area. Absolutely. And there's a lot of information coming out now that, you know, our nursing colleagues prefer us to be there. And a lot of things that we're doing other pharmacists in different areas may not see, you know, the value. Little things like, you know, doing a medical emergency, prominent lines and having the, the um, IV pump set up. I have some people say, why do you do that? Nurses can do that. A lot of the things, you know, that I see could be done by other individuals. But what, what I think about simple tasks like that is that I know that, you know, my training and my expertise has led me to do these things and be able to do additional things like um, knowing which medication can go, what, what's compatible um, what rate to start these things at with this particular patient. And a lot of those things that individuals don't see to be very important to me, I think it is, especially in those high risk medications or in medical emergencies. And there's even talk now, I'm in a state where pharmacists are allowed to administer medications. And I've read a few articles where there's anywhere between 25 and, and 30% of the pharmacists out there that are actually administering medications in these you know medical emergencies. And it's just interesting to see what, what can ED pharmacists do and how can we be more involved? And I do really think, you know, some of the things like, you know, obtaining medications from the medication dispensing cabinet, priming lines, you know, and I agree with you. I think that that there is a specialty piece to that practice. And I almost think of that as our customer service piece in a way. And I think to differentiate it versus like, we're just getting the medications. We're not just getting the medications. Like for instance, if someone calls for fentanyl, you're not just going to the, the medication dispensing cabinet to get fentanyl. You're thinking through while you're doing that, you know, is that the right drug for this patient? You know, is this the right dose for this patient? And you're thinking through kind of those higher level clinical pieces. Same thing with, you know, priming a line or starting the pump. Like you're obviously, you know, we're doing that to, to help out the team. And I think that helps with our relationships. But like you said, we're also thinking about compatibility of the drug, dose of the drug, you know, is it made correctly? Are we making it? Things like that. So, you know, I think of some of those kind of procuring medication aspects as our customer service piece, and it helps build the relationships. But I think, you know, we're doing a lot more beyond just just getting the drugs or just facilitating the administration um, that, that separates out you know, just another person to do it. Absolutely. And I'm just to prevent this from running too long. There's a lot of things I would love to sit here. <laughs> but just from us, just any any final thoughts? Because I can I definitely have tons of questions. And but that's why I got involved in the ACCP, <laughs> you know, EM, um, PRN to kind of have someone kind of help me through a lot of these. But what are your like final thoughts on, you know, where we are now as emergency medicine specialty for pharmacists? And, you know, where would you like to see us in the future? And any tips that, again, that you have that we haven't talked about today? Yeah, I mean, I think the emergency medicine team really touches every service in the hospital and has that transition transitional role, like we had mentioned before, from a community standpoint into admission or pre-hospital services or whatnot. And, you know, really the opportunities for EM clinical pharmacists are really endless. And we really, as a group, need to be observant about 
identifying practice gaps and to really brainstorm with our colleagues on expanded roles for pharmacists. Um, I think we have a great infrastructure of what we've been doing, um, but now really thinking, you know, what's the next step for EM clinical pharmacists, you know, still in that direct bedside role or beyond as our health systems change, our emergency departments change, we have urgent care, standalone EDs, there's, there's a lot of opportunities, unique opportunities for EM pharmacists to kind of grow beyond the footprint that we're currently practicing in. Well, I definitely thank you for coming to the show. I was just super excited when you emailed me back. It was so many questions that I had, and I definitely wanted to hear from you, especially because of the practice that you've built and some of the projects you've been part of. And I thought it was only right to, to have you on the show to, for me uh, and for the audience out there, most individuals can, can't say that they've been as involved in the, you know, the day-to-day of what ED pharmacy looks like to like now as you had. So I definitely thank you for coming on the show. I thank everyone else for listening. This is going to be like my favorite episode up up to this point. (laughs) And definitely check out the website. I'm going to have a lot of the articles that I read leading up to this. So you guys can reach out as well to see the different aspects to starting and implementing ED with clinical services. So thank you guys and have a good day. And thank you again for listening to the episode of the Farm So Hard podcast.